0: There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Friday, March 22nd, 2019, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Mueller Report is in. We don't have details yet. But you should also know, as that happened, ISIS is out. Yes, ISIS is defeated. Woohoo! Have you heard? The caliphate is past its caliph sell by date. The Islamic State in Syria is in Syria no more. The White House says in tweets, with caps, that ISIS is 100% defeated. Here's Fox News coverage. For the first time since we've been here in Syria, five days covering this offensive, the bombs have stopped dropping, the gunfire has disappeared. There's an eerie calm here now, and, and I think we have witnessed the end of the caliphate. Now, maybe those words would be more convincing if the reporter weren't covered in full body armor and a helmet. Maybe he's just worried about being radicalized online. CBS also reported on the facts of ISIS being defeated, which is true in terms of uh, a caliphate that claims territory actively fighting. But then the reporter added this. Now, the defeat of ISIS on the ground is a major milestone, but tens of thousands of ISIS members and supporters have melted away and they will continue to pose a threat to the security of this region. The White House should know that much like declaring infrastructure weak doesn't make it so, crowing about the defeat of ISIS has a huge potential to come back and bite you in the rear or bomb you in the marketplace. Some strain of virulent anti-Western terrorism will rise, in fact, doesn't need to rise. It's there and always has been there. It hasn't stopped targeting innocents, often those allied with the United States. Take that into account when you consider the argument put forth by President Trump today as he talked to reporters with his helicopter whirling in the background. Uh, I brought this out for you because this is a map of everything in the red. This was on election night in 2016. Everything red is ISIS. When I took it over, it was a mess. Now, on the bottom, that's the exact same. There is no red. There are streets that are running pretty red, Mr. President, still, right now. Two months ago, a massive car bomb in Afghanistan killed dozens of people, could have been over 100. Boko Haram killed 23 people in Chad yesterday. The day before that, ISIS, yes, the ISIS that you say is defeated, killed five in Syria and six in Afghanistan. That was a bombing that injured another 23. There is very little good that could come from bragging that you defeated an enemy if that enemy continues to kill the day before your triumphant tweet, and I'm sure within the days to come. It is short-sighted and misleading, but hey, fun to say, we beat ISIS. Oh, those bombings? Oh, those executions? Oh, those beheadings? Never mind that. Pay attention to these tweets with these exclamations and this map. On the show today, I spiel about the real upsets of March Madness. They might not be what you think, but they also are kind of a little bit what you think. But first, onto one of the truly gifted novelists working today. John Lanchester always comes up with something exciting and new, and his new book, The Wall, is just that. The setting is England or an Englandy type place a little less landmass than it has now because it's a book set in the future and global warming has hit and hit hard and now life in England is about keeping out the refugees and tamping down unrest from within how to do it well i can think of one solution that always works the wall which is the name of the novel john lanchester up next The Wall is a new novel from John Lanchester. His previous books, The Debt to Pleasure and Capital, if you read them, give you a clue that this is a man with a journalism background. He likes to take a story, or although you get the sense with The Wall, he was almost forced to take a story that's in the news and play it out in a slightly different way, either traipsing through time or from a different milieu. The Wall is about a United Kingdom in the future where... The sea has risen and the immigrants have been pushed out. We follow the story of Kavanaugh, a man who is assigned to the wall and everything that happens to him afterwards. John Lanchester, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. What, am I right? Was this the sort of story that you just couldn't get the idea of it out of your head? You You were compelled to grapple with it in the form of fiction, what was going on in the world around you with uh, Brexit and anti-immigration sentiment?
1: I am tried to think of a polite way of saying no. no it was the yeah. other way around. No, I was writing a novel about something else. Still am, actually. I was part of the way through a book. And I, I began having a recurring dream. Uh, and it was a, a dream that had this image of a man standing on a wall alone at night in the dark and the cold with the water on the other side. And I eventually started thinking, well, what's, you know, what's that about? And realized... I, my first question was, who is he? And then realized, actually, I was asking the wrong question. The question was about, what world is that? Right. And realized that it was a world after catastrophic climate change. So the odd thing was that um, I start this was sort of early 2016. So uh, Brexit and Trump and all that were happening in the background. But um, it, it, you know, and I did know that I was writing about climate change. That was very much in the forefront of my head. And I was aware of it. But but the kind of weird coincidences about, you know, um, walls suddenly being all over the news and things like that i mean at that point i would have gone out and bet the value of my house against trump being the republican nominee let alone the president let alone you know having his um, fantasies about building a wall um and it, so it was this strange you know it's strange what leaks into a book mm-hmm. and that and clearly you know it can't be just a billion to one coincidence clearly those things their fingerprints are in the book but they weren't what was in the forefront of my mind
0: Yes. In fact, when I was reading the book, I wasn't so much thinking about the wall that Trump keeps prattling on about because that wall doesn't exist. I was thinking more about the idea of being insular and making America and England into fortresses, fortress America and how impractical an idea that is. And yet, if it were an idea, what would it look like? So yes, when I I didn't, I never thought about the wall on the southern border. I thought more about walls along our shores, all of our shores to keep uh, outsiders and as you call it, the others
1: out definitely. I mean, I did think in terms of, sort of projecting two things forward into the future that are trends in the present. It's a bit like the thing where you get on a graph, an economic graph, you get a solid line getting up to, going up to the present moment, and then dotted lines right. projected into the future. And I was thinking about two kinds of dotted line. One about trends in climate, you know, if we have unchecked emissions and the worse, the darker scenarios that the scientists are coming up are true. That was one of the trend lines. And the other one was the trend in our society and politics. And I think it does look, if we kind of step back... Um, and try, which is admittedly very difficult to do, but if we looked at the present moment from a kind of historical perspective, I think it would re- seem really apparent that we've moved from an e- epoch of wars coming down, borders opening, kind of globalized and international perspectives to a time when we are wanting to turn inwards, look in towards ourselves to, you know, close the borders, pull up the drawbridge to say, you know, we have nothing in common with those people who are right. fleeing desperately to, to come to our countries. I think... And there's this odd thing that, um, in terms of walls and borders. Most of all the walls built since the Second World War were built this century. You know, we are living in a great era of fortifications going up. And, you know, Trump's wall is in the papers. But there's a wall between India and Pakistan. There's a wall between Israel and and the Palestinian state. There's Iraq is walled off on every side, there's a huge wall in the Sahara Desert between Western Sahara and the rest, you know uh, we there are walls shiny new high tech walls and borders are going up even as we speak and I think there is a kind of, one of those strange inexplicable things, a kind of global shift of mood and I think we are moving towards a period where people are, you know, looking inward
0: Yeah, and uh, just I wonder if you had a count of all the gated communities. Those are walls that are affecting all of our lives, and they definitely have risen in the last 20 years as opposed to the uh, 50 after World War II.
1: And I think there's a thing about every... I think there's a paradoxical thing about walls that every wall that was ever built anywhere in the world was built to make somebody feel more secure. Mm-hmm. That's the basic impulse, that you know people feel safer if they have a wall around them. And yet, at the same time, they have a tremendous... Their, their intention is to exclude, and a wall looks very different when you're on the other side of it. And I'm really interested in that in that doubleness. There's, they create an us and a them. And, you, and when people talk about the Great Wall of China, um, if you go and look at it on a map, you think, well, actually, they should have called that the slightly below average wall of China because it doesn't <laughs> actually it, yeah. go around. You know, yeah, the kind yeah. of a bit rubbish wall of China. You know, uh, not only can you not see it from space, it's kind of beta minus. But actually, you know. Um, historians make the point that it's actually about defining Chineseness as much as yeah. it's an actual fortification. It's about, you know, the Han Chinese are on one side and on the other side, it's just, it's the barbarians. Yes, You know, they're kind of covering themselves in bare fat and getting up to who knows what. And I think that that's one of the crucial things that walls do. They're about security and also about this sense of otherness and division.
0: And they also are always built to keep the others out. But of course, they then keep the community in and at least in America, that's, I think, what was going on, whether the people who were most in favor of it knew it or not. It's like, well, if we build this wall, the Mexicans won't be there. But guess what? Guess who will be here? The real people who should be here.
1: Yes. And I think that that sense of um, the kind of internal consequences of what wolves do is very important. I think it's one of the reasons I don't mean to be I don't like coming to America and telling Americans about their politics. I think it's a bit impertinent. Well, I'll tell
0: you a little bit about Brexit and what they just voted okay. on sheep tariffs. I cannot believe. Exactly, oh, we'll, we'll
1: swap. <laughs> um, but but there is certainly that sense of, of of defining an us and a them and an inclusion and an exclusion. Um, that, that's very, you know, that's a sort of central theme in the way that in the kind of imaginary resonances of walls. And yet you have this other thing at the same time that if you talk to Germans who are alive in the era of the cold war and the iron curtain and the berlin Wall. you know the berlin Wall ran through the heart of every german every german felt their country was divided and and you know the place you were from had all kinds of particular meaning to do with which side of it you were on you know and where you, who, what your identity was and all that and at the same time it wasn't a metaphor yeah you know it was a met- very powerful organizing metaphor and yet also a brutal physical fact that got people killed every day trying to cross it. And, and you have that strange thing about Trump's wall too, that it's on one hand, it's this sort of imaginary thing about who we are and the kind of us-ness of us. And at the same time, it would be this actual oppressive physical reality. I think that that's, you know, there are all these dualities around the subject of walls. I think that's one really important one.
0: How often do you pay attention to dreams?
1: Well, not very. Um, and that's why it was a bit odd. I've had, I've written one or two short things that came out like that but uh, not often i think there's a thing um i don't i i'm you know don't in general subscribe to a freudian view that our dreams are saturated with meaning all the time but i think there's a i think it's in um it's one of the african cultures one of the tribal cultures i don't remember which but they make a distinction between the great dreams and lesser dreams yeah. you know that as when you know so the dream you have where you're angry with your mother-in-law you know that's not a big deal but you know occasionally you have, have a dream that actually has consequences and that's happened to me one or two times so i i, I do basically sign up to that that sometimes you know most of the time it's just rubbish but occasionally something does force itself on you
0: like the uh, Greeks with all their definitions of love, I think the pre-industrial cultures have a lot of different ways of thinking of dreams and sleep that we don't anymore. Of course, it was their great entertainment.
1: Well, I also think we overvalue, you know, I'm very interested in Neolithic cultures and um, old versions of humanity before we were, you know, the person we are now with our cultures based on writing and, and all that. And I think that we, you know, this thing called the Flynn effect, which is yes. the thing about I, our IQ going, going up, up yeah. which is slightly mysterious. And I think it's funny because our whole... Lives are skewed around things that make us good at IQ tests, about pattern recognition, processing information, recognizing similarities, retaining certain sorts of information. I think we used to live in a way that actually prioritized other parts of our brain. And dreams, reveries, fantasies, altered states, um, trance-like states, visions, things like that. I think those used to be a much more important part of what it meant, meant to be human. I think we are these weird... I remember the Australian tennis great Rod Laver who was five foot eight inches tall, um, but his left arm, his bicep was the same circumference as Muhammad Ali because he was a left-handed tennis player and that's how how hard he hit it. And we're, we're a little bit like, we're kind of Rod Lavers with one part of our brain and we have these other parts we don't use which we occasionally put to work.
0: I think it's Steven Pinker, but one of those guys speculates that it's uh, because of more abstract thought. As we got wealthier and were forced to and got to, there was a good reason to engage in abstract thought that would allow our intelligence to expand, or at least intelligence as measured on the IQ test. But that actually doesn't contradict what you're saying at all. It makes perfect sense,
1: doesn't it? And it's one of the things, uh, you know, if you're thinking in terms of prehistory, you know, we're, we're kind of living at the in the same place and at the same time as Neanderthals for about, uh, you know, for I think something like fifty thousand years, and you know, then some somehow we outcompete them and we win, and it does overlap with the period of the last really significant change in the climate. And it would figure that you know, since we know the Neanderthals weren't dumb and were in Western Europe for for millennia, that you had some something that we could do that they couldn't. And maybe it was a thing like, you know, they were capable of making tools, hunting, making fun, things like that, but they weren't capable of framing a thought like the climate is changing. You know, that's a level of abstraction and thing that, you know, we could manage and they couldn't.
0: Yes. Yes. They just didn't have the means to understand their reality in that way. And I don't know, maybe there's an, maybe we don't have the understanding, the means to understand if when you're talking about trance-like and dream-like thoughts, maybe that will somehow come to bite our our species in the ass. I don't know.
1: Or it's possible if you imagine, you know, someone looking back at us living through a moment where, as with the, our last chance to avert catastrophic climate change, and if we let it go, it might seem very obvious that we have a, a cognitive defect that, you know, yeah. our our Ability to project imagination into the future to react to the needs because in a sense what we're we're saying We have to act now. We're reacting to the needs of people who haven't been born yet Yeah, and maybe from there's another kind of superhuman or more evolved perspective That's our weakness that we couldn't you know We couldn't act as if the future generation was right here right now making claims on us
0: I wouldn't call this book sci-fi if you if someone would I also wouldn't argue But is it the first book that you've written in the future? Um, Set in the future.
1: Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Let me think about that. Yeah, no, definitely it is. And I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm, I, same thing. I wouldn't call it that. But I, I'm, you know, I love sci-fi. I've read ton of it, it's What I grew up on I'm, I'm, you know someone else wants to I'm perfectly happy
0: yeah I don't know what the difference is but I think it somehow goes back to your point of you didn't use the opportunity of sci-fi to make as many changes as many interesting changes as you could you had this one premise and you stuck with it and you tried to be uh, as faithful to what really would happen but did you write have you written as many really gripping action scenes ever before with violence and and stakes like that
1: um, there's there's some. There's, I suppose it's less violent, but there are a few action scenes in the novel I wrote about growing up in Hong Hong Kong Fragrant Harbor. But I, I did want you know to go back to the point about you know walls not being metaphors. Uh, you know the physical facts. So it's, I wanted some of the danger and violence that's implicit in this wall. You know they spend two years on duty guarding it, and the thing about that is any given day is quite monotonous, you don't want anything to happen. But if anything does happen, it's immediately a matter of life and death. Yes. You know, and the the violence is not metaphorical, it's completely real. You can die. You can lose your life. And the
0: prose gets tighter and straighter and more urgent. And uh, did you read anyone to get into that mindset?
1: No, I mean I've read lots of books like that and I've always really I've always really loved writers who can convey physical action by which I don't necessarily mean shooty shooty bang bang I just mean you know actual things happening in the world and momentum and um, of whom one of the great writers in the English language tradition is Robert Louis Stevenson I think he's he's a funny thing because the two people who like him are kids who like them as stories and he's also a complete writer's writer you know it's very I've never met uh, an adult fiction writer who doesn't deeply admire Stevenson and the prose has this quality of absolute translucence you yeah. know you can you can see through it it's like a it's like that kind of, it's like the sheet of glass that's so clean you walk into it because you don't see it yeah I've heard
0: a similar thing about Vonnegut, that like when you're a smart teenager, you love him. And then somehow you get a little more sophisticated and you're told, oh, it's so easy to like Vonnegut. And then when you really understand, not that I've gotten there, but when a writer really understands what craftsmanship is, you realize Vonnegut's a genius.
1: And I'm having that with my son, actually. I've been having pressed Vonnegut on him. Um, and he's just turned 21 and he's just, and, you know, Slaughterhouse-Five is one of the first adult books he read that completely blew his mind. It's very interesting seeing that seeing writers who can who can do that and, and it's interesting who stays fresh you know because you, you can look back at things and right. they have kind of you know things go off and date and go musty and then there's other writing that you know has that mysterious power to just um i mean that's, it is the deep mystery about you know creative arts and writing at a very high level is it's all about newness
0: and I think my last question is, so I, because I've watched the whole series and read a few of the books, couldn't help but thinking of Game of Thrones here and there. But what about you? Have you watched that? Did you think of Game of Thrones when you put your character up on the wall, staring down and watching out for others slash wildings?
1: I'm a huge fan. I'm a series one, episode one fan of Game of Thrones, partly because I slightly know the then not famous, but now amazingly famous Richard Madden. He's a friend. he'd, He'd said he was in this thing that was coming up. And I think it was dis- described by his agent as Sopranos meets Lord of the Rings. I remember that's immediately good. immediately thinking, I'm going to love that. And I better watch it because, you know, they're only going to make three episodes. <laughs> and it actually, to be honest, that's still a slight mystery because I knew it's like they spent 100 million bucks making something just for me. But it's still interesting that it's so caught on. Because right. out there in the world, plenty of people say, if you mentioned Tolkien or Lewis, people say, oh, I don't read fantasy. I mean, that's a massive, massive thing. And it's so interesting that he somehow... Martin's somehow been able to, or the showrunner's been able to break through that and get this gigantic global audience. So no, I am a massive fan. I didn't think of a direct link, but there is a kind of joint inspiration below it, because Martin talked about Hadrian's Wall and, you know, my wall isn't 800 feet high and ma- made of ice and magic spells. I don't want to disappoint prospective <laughs> readers, but it is. It's made of concrete, it's 15 feet high. But he, I, di- I was rather inspired by Hadrian's Wall, because as archaeologists find out more about it, we know about the people who are on it. And they're from far-flung bits of the Roman Empire. They're from, you know, modern-day equivalent of Syria, um, from modern-day equivalent of Belgium, modern-day equivalent of North Africa. And, you know, you wonder what it was like for them just literally standing on the edge of the world. That was the thing that I did have in my head, that feeling of really being on the edge of something, you know, basically wishing you were somewhere else.
0: The Wall, a new novel by John Lanchester. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. The Anteaters Devoured the Wildcats, world's wackiest nature documentary. I wish it was actually a result, a surprise in March Madness. But was it the biggest upset of March Madness so far? No. The biggest upset of March Madness happened today, and it was Donald Trump upsetting his Treasury Department. So the Treasury announced a new set of sanctions on North Korea, and then Donald Trump tweeted out, nah, I've canceled them. Wait, what? What? Sarah Huckabee Sanders clarifies, quote, President Trump likes Chairman Kim, and he doesn't think these sanctions will be necessary. What? You know that game, Pretty Kitty Kelly? It's like a uh, logic puzzle, and you try to figure out the pattern. So it'll be like, uh, Pretty Kitty Kelly likes bees, but hates flies. Pretty Kitty Kelly likes apples, but hates pears. You try to figure it out from there, unless you know it already. You know, it's it's a pattern recognition game. And I'm always doing that with President Trump. Petty President Trump likes Kim, but hates McCain. Petty President Trump likes Kellyanne, but hates George. Petty President Trump likes Konstantin Kalimnik, but hates Michael Cohen. Do you get it? Is it that Trump likes K's? KKK's? No, it's not that, though. Might be a little bit. Is it that he's a narcissistic madman with no rhyme or reason? Yes, exactly. And he is a madman. And this is, after all, March Madness. So maybe when you think about it, this whole backtracking, embarrassing the Treasury in public, maybe it wasn't that much of an upset. But this, this now, this is the truly the biggest upset of March Madness. It is the totally unexpected, wacky addition. To the capital one commercials you know the capital one commercials where those three besties samuel jackson charles barkley and spike lee engage in the tacit perpetuation of the myth that all black people in the entertainment industry know each other Ice ray dikembe mutombo ja rule cornell west those guys have a summer share together well that was the idea and we got the idea Sam and Spike, they kind of played versions of themselves in the pursuit of selling credit cards. Sam was skeptical. Spike was energetic, but realistic. And then comes Charles. And Charles played like a six-foot, five-inch Ralph Wiggum. Home, home on the rain. Where the deer and the cantaloupe play. Stop! Pump oh, your brakes! Oh. Did you just say cantaloupe? Yeah, makes sense. How can it make sense? <laughs> Do you love, cantaloupe. Are you serious? <laughs> I don't think your melon is right. Well, that was last year, and the years before that, and the year before that. Now, at different times, another member of the group was added. Alec Baldwin showed up for a little while. Gloria Gaynor sang a song, but now they have a whole new member of the crew, and it's a pretty big upset to me in March Madness, that the fourth member of this crazy quartet is human normcore Jim Nance.
1: What is this? Behold, the final focus board. The final what is who? On color commentary, is me, Charles Broccoli. <laughs> and we got the legendary Jim Nance on the log. Healthy and delicious. And what final four is complete <laughs> without my two buddies, Ham Jackson and Spike Bree. Yo,
0: yo. So, what's going on in the commercial here is that Charles Barkley starts sprinkling some edible confection on his smorgasbord, and Jim Nance, the CBS announcer known mostly for golf and being boring, leans in to deliver his killer punchline.
1: And there's snowing in Minnesota, lizard like conditions at the Final Four.
0: <laughs> oh, how Spike and Sam laughed and laughed at this Jim Nance wisecrack. Set of words? Okay, it's that. I don't get it. Spike and Sam were once seen as dangerous and provocative and cool. They were definitely cool. And Charles, he really was dangerous. He once threw a guy through a plate glass window, but he was certainly a truth teller. Charles Barkley, he tells it like it is. Paired with Jim Nance, and they find Jim Nance delightful? He is the group's new cut up? We're asked to imagine the -the off-the-wall conversations these four have about, I don't know, blazers and slacks and how Green Mile was an abomination. Oh, Nance was on that. I would call Jim Nance a straight arrow, but arrows sometimes have colorful feathers on them. Look, I know these commercials posit a fake world. Charles Barkley in real life, it's almost certain that the guy could tie his own shoes and that he's allowed to use forks without stoppers on them. But in the fake world... It should be heightened for humorous effect. The writers should come up with some great one-liners to make these three comic personalities shine. The put-downs should be vicious. And then enter Jim freaking Nance, the kind of guy who bangs on your apartment door at 10.30 and tells you to turn down that Bill Haley and the Rockets LP. Jim Nance... Jim Nance guards the master ceremony like Cerebris guards the underworld. Only his three heads are soothing, calming, and deferential. Hello, friends. The fabled green jacket. Ho. Oh, an aggressive approach shot on 14. Sam, I have to say I loved it when you decried those motherfucking snakes on that motherfucking plane. Oh, how I and Brooks Kepka laughed. And Spike, you know, I always thought, to quote Brother Malcolm, We didn't land on Butler Cabin. Butler Cabin landed on us. This is the biggest upset of March Madness, by which I mean I'm upset. I always thought those Capital One commercials were lame, but at least they were consistent. They promoted a sport where the best players leave after one year, where teams switch conferences at the drop of an officially licensed hat. Against this backdrop, Chuck, Spike, and Sam were the most continuity March Madness had and they go and bring in Beto O'Dork over here.
1: Darn you, Jim Nats, with your rugged good looks and beverly voice.
0: Now that's the real voice of the Final Four. Alas, it is. It is one of the biggest upsets of March Madness. But I console myself with this thought. So long as cuddly versions of once-challenging artists and edgy athletes are used to sell credit cards, and so long as the TV network airing the finals charges an estimated $1.5 million dollars for a single 30-second commercial, and so long as the actual players providing the entertainment, don't see any of that money, well then I guess, when it's all said and done, the true meaning of March Madness stays intact. And I can't be very upset. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader. They are working on a novel that wonders what happens 50 years in the future when the president's sharpest top advisor is allowed to lay hands on a glowing orb and then Snapchat that to friends. The sun is out in paperback. This never. T.J. Raphael senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She handed over the raw files of this week's Mom and Dad are Fighting to the Attorney General Barr as per regulation... You can only wait and hope that he releases them in a timely manner and with proper compression. The gist. Just think, from the time I record this to the time you hear it, we may find out that the P-tape was fake, that the P-tape was real, that the P-tape was a fake news hoax, or that the P-tape featured Devin Nunes' mom. Don't sue, Devin! I didn't say it would happen, I just said it could. And thanks for listening.